Folks, hey, really glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, why don't you uh, grab them at this point in time, and uh, you can turn with me to the passage that Larry read, which is in Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. As we continue on in our series, New Love, New Year, taking a look at how we are to love one another as brothers and sisters in the church. Romans chapter 12, uh, we'll be starting in verse 13. So I hope you have your Bibles. If not, uh, there should be some scattered in the pew backs in front of you. Or, of course, you can take a look on the screen. Uh, Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Let's pray, and we'll dive right in. Father, we thank you for the time to look into your word, and we pray that it would be, um, uh, uh, that it would be effective in our hearts and in our lives, that you would teach us, paint a glorious picture for us as to what it is and what it means for us to truly be a loving church and then enable us by your spirit to become that. We pray it in the name of Jesus and God's people said. Amen. You know, this week as I was uh, getting ready for the sermon, I I did a little research. I uh, pulled up my internet, uh, trusted Google, right? And I Googled recipe disasters, recipe disasters. And I came across a site uh, that posted uh, several pictures, uh, the following pictures of people who apparently didn't follow the recipe. They didn't follow the recipe uh, very well. So let's just take a look at a few of these. I found them to be uh, somewhat humorous. Here's the first one. You want to take a guess as to what that is? That's uh, apparently brownie in a mug. Uh, failed attempt at brownie in the mug. <laughs> yeah, not, not so good. Here's the next one. Cookie monster cookies. On the right is what it, or your left is what it's supposed to look like. And uh, on your right, well, not so much. It looks more like a ninja turtle to me. I don't know. But uh, not, it didn't work out so well. How about this one? S'mores in the oven, anyone? Ever tried that before? S'mores in the oven? Never tried that? Eh, doesn't look so good. How about this one? This is probably my favorite. Pizza in the oven without a pan, right? You just set it on there, and I don't know if it was extra heavy. Maybe they added a cup extra cheese, and it's, you know, yeah, that's a fail. That's not going to work. How about this one? Another pizza toasted, right? A little, 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 little crispy. Uh, yeah, that's, that's not going to taste very good. Here's probably actually my favorite. Kitchen explosion. If you take a look at that, uh, you'll notice that something blew up. And you'll see that there are stains on the wall above the, the kitchen area. And then look at the top. What do you think that is? That looks like a pan lid to me, right? The top of a pan that somehow has been embedded in the, in the roof. I don't know if that's real or not, folks. But even if, you know, let's just say it is, somebody didn't follow the recipe on that one, right? Didn't follow the recipe. Well, of course, we've been talking about following Paul's recipe for having a loving church. And we've been doing that in Romans 12, verses 9 through 16. And uh, Paul has given us, I think, a list of 12 ingredients that make a loving church. The first six are uh, honor, enthusiasm, patience, sincerity, and discernment. And today we're going to finish up this passage and take a look at six more ingredients, six final ingredients. They are generosity, hospitality, goodwill, sympathy, harmony, and humility. Six more ingredients that we need to create a loving church. Well, let's dive in. Let's take a look at verse 13, where Paul gives us the seventh ingredient that we need to make a loving church, and that is the ingredient of generosity. Generosity. Reading your Bibles with me. Share with the Lord's people, Paul says, who are in need. Share with the Lord's people, God's people, who are in need. The word here uh, in Greek, share, is koinonio, which means to have in common. It simply means to share something with somebody else. But it usually refers to sharing financial, that is sharing your money or sharing your possessions. Interestingly enough, uh, this is from the word group. The noun in Greek is koinonia, 
It's the noun uh, form of this, which is translated in the New Testament, fellowship. Maybe you've heard that word before, koinonia, fellowship. Isn't that interesting, right? That to share our possessions and to share our money with the Lord's people is a form of fellowship. We often think of fellowship as simply eating a meal together or sharing some time together or sharing life experiences with one another. And certainly fellowship is that. It is that. But it's more than that. It also involves sharing our resources, sharing our resources with one another. You know, one of the ways that we have fellowship in the church is by sharing our material possessions and our money with Christians, as Paul says, who are in need. They have a legitimate need. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, in particular the early, uh, the early few chapters, it paints a beautiful picture of, I think, how the church is supposed to be. The, the early church, when it was first born, it wasn't perfect, but boy, they did a lot of things right. And what do you remember? Do you recall something specifically about that early church? They were generous. They shared their possessions. In fact, in fact Acts chapter 2, verse 44, tells us this. All the believers were together. And they had everything in common. Then in chapter 4, verse 32, we read this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. So, brothers and sisters, the early church was characterized by their generosity for one another. And the question that I have for us is, is our church characterized by our generosity for one another? I think it begins, if we want to become a generous church, I think it begins with getting to know people well enough to actually know their needs. Because if you don't know your brother and sister in Christ well enough to know their needs, well then how can you meet their needs, right? So it begins with that, with rubbing shoulders, conversations, emails, text messages, spending time with one another so that we can know each other's needs, right? Some people will let you know if they have a need, but many times uh, they won't. And so we need to be in people's lives deep enough and strong enough so that we can guess their needs, anticipate their needs, or, or so that they can be comfortable enough with us to tell us their needs, so that we can practice biblical generosity. Then the question becomes, if we know about people's needs, are we willing to meet them, right? Are we willing to give of our stuff, our resources, our money, our materials? If they are in need of a car, their car is in the shop, are you willing to to lend them yours? If you know that a, a bag of groceries would be helpful to them because you know them well enough that it's been a tight month, would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to pay their rent for a month or two or their mortgage if you knew maybe they were out of a job? Would people find a blank envelope of your cash in their mailbox if you knew that medical bills were getting the best of them and overwhelming them? Would they find money from you in their mailbox? What if you knew that uh, there was a single mom or a single dad and they were running a little bit behind on uh, their tires and the tread was wearing thin? Would you take the initiative to maybe purchase a tire or two or three or four? The first ingredient that we see today and the seventh ingredient in the list of 12 is that a church that is loving is a church that shares. We share our things with one another, a generous church. 
Not only that, but there's a specific form of generosity that Paul then tells us about at the tail end of verse 13. And it's, it's our eighth ingredient. Take a look at the tail end of verse 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Specifically, what then does Paul say? Practice hospitality. Practice hospitality, which of course is our eighth ingredient. Uh, One commentator by the name of Ash uh, kind of says of hospitality, kind of tongue-in-cheek, he says that hospitality is, quote, making people feel at home when you wish that they were, right? Making people feel at home when you wish that they were. That is, you wish that they were in their own home and not yours, right? I think sometimes we feel this way about hospitality. We may not be inclined to it. We're busy. That means we have to clean our house to have people over, right? Hospitality, I, I fear, is becoming a lost art in the realm of Christianity. But it, It's an essential ingredient. It's listed here, number eight. The word hospitality, literally, in the Greek, is the love of strangers. So Paul says, practice loving strangers. Practice loving strangers. And I think specifically, he means here other Christians that you may not know very well. If generosity, which we just saw, is to show uh, that our brothers and sisters have a need and we meet it, then hospitality is showing brothers and sisters who are in, in need room and board, right? It's providing for their housing needs and for their food needs. In the New Testament times, this hospitality, taking in other Christians into your home, giving them a place to stay, giving them a warm meal, was actually really important. Uh, because of the cultural difference, we don't think it's as important. But back then, it was hugely important, and here's a couple reasons why. First of all, let's say you were a Christian, and you were traveling across the Roman Empire. Um, It's not like there was a Motel 6 or a Holiday Inn on every corner as you traveled to Ephesus or Rome. Where were you going to stay? Where were you and your family going to stay the night if you're traveling across the Roman Empire? Well, there were kind of inns or hotels, if you will, but they were really few and far between. And not only that, but they had a reputation of being both unsafe and unsavory. So you really didn't want to stay there if you were a Christian. So what would you do? You would travel, let's say, into the city of Ephesus. That's the city you were going to stay that night. And then you would uh, inquire of the Christians. You would inquire who was a believer in this town and you would knock on their door. And guess what? You would be a stranger to them. And yet you would share your faith in Christ and the testimony of what Jesus had done and the early Christians would house you. They would bring you in to keep you and your family safe. And so this is a huge thing, not only then, but it's also a huge thing for us today. Paul says practice hospitality. Literally, he says pursue it. Pursue hospitality. Church, I wonder, I wonder if we are pursuing hospitality with one another. I think the idea of hospitality simply being hosting a meal or, or a gathering uh, is right, but it's incomplete. Don't get me wrong. We need to show this kind of hospitality to one another. We need to have our brothers and sisters from grace in our homes having meals together, sharing coffee and time with one another. But more than that, we need to be willing to do things like hosting traveling missionaries. Maybe they're visiting our church for the weekend or even considering providing temporary room and board for a brother or sister or a family of Christians that are in legitimate need. I remember, it's probably been a few years ago, but there was a young lady by the name of Brianne McKay. 
I don't know if you remember Brianne McKay or not. She was here only for a summer. But I got a phone call from her one day, and she said, my name's Brianne, and I go to school up in Wisconsin, but I'm going to be interning over at, a, 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 at, the, at the nursery in Anarga, and I'm a Christian, and I'm looking for a place to stay. What can you do for me? And uh, I'm really happy to say that I, I got on the phone and I talked to several people in the church, and there were several people who said, yeah, we'll take her in. We'll take her in the whole summer, not a problem. And that was a really good thing. I was so proud of our church for, for practicing hospitality. I remember when I was uh, 22, I just graduated from, uh, from college, and I was traveling to Dallas to start seminary. And I was going to be working as a youth pastor there. And I really needed a place to stay uh, for the summer before I got started. And so the church there hooked me up uh, with a couple by the name of Woody and Kathy Glenn. Uh, and to this day, they are probably some of our very best friends. And I remember driving up uh, there in, in downtown Dallas, pretty much downtown Dallas, to the home of Woody and Kathy. And I see a, a big, really big, 6'6", bulky guy with, with no hair. That is, he shaved his head uh, doing some yard work. And I thought, what am I getting myself into? I'm staying at, at the home of this guy. And who knows? He looks kind of, kind of mean. And he walked up to me and he said, hi, my name's Woody. You must be Trey. And I was like, yeah, I'm Trey. He's like, welcome home, brother. And he showed me my room. And not only did they keep me for uh, about a month or two during the summer, they fed me. And it was awesome. <laughs> um, they showed hospitality, right? And so, friends, we need to do the same. We need to have a generous church. We need to have a church that shows hospitality. But not only that, let's take a look at verse 14. We need to have a church that shows what I'll call goodwill. We show goodwill to each other. Notice what Paul says, some interesting words in verse 14. Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless and do not curse. It's interesting. You may be thinking that Paul is saying, I thought he was talking about relationships among Christians. Friends, I believe he is. Because Paul knew and understood what I think Mark Twain knew and understood when he would tell this story. He would tell a story. He would say, friends, uh, one day I, I put a cat and a dog in a cage together to see if they would get along. And he would say, they got along fine. Then I'd put a bird and a pig and a goat in a second cage, and with a few adjustments, they got along fine. But friends, then I put a Baptist and a Presbyterian and a Catholic together in the cage, and there was no one living after a few minutes. You know, Mark Twain understood what Paul understood, and that is that, unfortunately, Christians sometimes can be hurtful to one another. We can sometimes harm one another. And I think Paul recognized that. He used a strong word. Bless those who persecute you. That is, they are seeking to do you harm. In light of this, he tells us how we are to respond when other Christians are seeking to do us harm. And what does he say? He says, bless those who are persecuting you. Bless them and do not curse, right? Of course, to bless and to curse are opposites, right? To bless them is simply to wish good upon them. And to curse them is to wish ill upon them. To, to bless them is to, is to desire their, their health. And to curse them is to desire their harm. The word bless here that he uses in Greek is eulogio. Eulogio. It means to speak well of a person. Does that sound familiar? It's where we get our English word to eulogize, right? When we, when we give a eulogy, at a funeral, what are we doing? We're standing up at the death of someone and we are giving all of the good things about that person, right? 
Now, they may not be entirely good. In fact, no one's entirely good. But what do you choose to do in that moment? In the eulogy, you overlook the bad and you speak good about them. So Paul says, when Christians are doing wrong to us, that we should have a little funeral for them. Not because we killed them, okay? And not because we are dreaming or thinking about killing them, but because we're giving a eulogy over them. We are choosing to bless them instead of cursing them. And he intentionally echoes Jesus here in Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus not only says that we should bless those who curse us, but we should, quote, do good to them. And we should, quote, pray for them. And while I hope this is not true of any of you in Paul's words that there's someone in this church or church or in this community, another Christian who is persecuting you, it may be the case or it may be the case in the future. And so, friends, Paul wants us to know how do we handle hostile Christians? He says, begin by asking God to help you speak well of them, to help you want good for them. And then he says... Pray for them, right? Pray for those who are persecuting you. Pray for their welfare. Pray for their family. Pray for their jobs. Pray for their kids. Pray for whatever. Oftentimes when we pray for our enemies, especially another Christian who's under the influence of the Holy Spirit, oftentimes not only is our heart softened towards them so that we can bless them, but many times God softens their heart towards us. And so we need... We need a generous church. We need to be a hospitable church. We need to be a church of goodwill. There's a tenth ingredient, and it's found in verse 15. Let's take a look at verse 15. It's sympathy. Paul says that we should be sympathetic as a church. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. I love what John Stott says as he he describes this biblical sympathy. He says this. He says, love never stands aloof from other people's joys or pains. Love identifies with them, sings with them, and suffers with them. Love enters deeply into their their experiences and their emotions, their laughter and their tears. It feels solidarity with them, whatever, whatever their mood, right? And so Paul says that we should be sympathetic. Rejoice when our brothers and sisters are happy. Mourn when they are mourning. Let's think about this. What is the result of on the other person, on the other Christian, when we rejoice with them and when we mourn with them? What's the result for the other person when we rejoice, when they are rejoicing? Well, their joy is what? It's increased, right? What's the result when we mourn with those who mourn? Their mourning is what? Decreased. The old uh, Swedish proverb is true which says this, shared joy is a double joy. Shared joy is a double joy, but shared sorrow is half a sorrow, half a sorrow. So friends, are we doing this at Grace Bible Church? Are we rejoicing with those who rejoice? Are we mourning with those who mourn? Are we, when we hear of a, of a, of a, of a a mom or a dad and they're telling us about their son and how he made straight A's in school and we look at our kids report cards and we see B's and maybe one A and we see a C do we rejoice with those who rejoice or are we jealous of their son right when we hear about a a a man or a woman and they got a promotion at work and you've been stuck in the same job without a promotion for 10 years do you rejoice with them 
or do you not? I think one of the ways we can rejoice with those who rejoice is by going to celebrations. That is, by going to parties. Yes, I think going to parties is a biblical thing most of the time because most parties, like birthdays, weddings, anniversaries, graduation parties, sometimes people are celebrating a special event. And when we go to those events, we're saying, I'm rejoicing with you, right? I'm glad that your son or daughter is graduating. I'm glad that they had another year of life. I'm glad that they had another year of successful marriage. Of course, not only should we go to celebrations, but we should go to to wakes and to funerals. What better way to mourn with those who mourn than being present with them at a very difficult time for them. Of course, that's not the only way we do it, right? We mourn with people when they're sick. We mourn with people when they're struggling. We mourn with people when they're having difficulties with their kids. Whatever it may be, as we share life together, we rejoice when they rejoice, and we mourn when they mourn. Not only that, but there's an 11th. Take a look at verse 16. At the very beginning of verse 16, we see not only should we have sympathy, but we should live in harmony with one another. In fact, Paul says as much, verse 16. He says, live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. That is, be united in what you believe and in the purpose of your church, in the the, the reason you exist as a church. Now, I, I read a few articles this week, and I believe them to be true, reliable resources, of a, um, of a town called Centerville, Georgia. And I read a couple sources that said that Centerville, Georgia, apparently holds a record. It's an infamous record. The record for the number of church splits uh, within one town stemming from one church. Does that make sense? So one town One church. So the original Presbyterian church apparently was founded way back in 1911. And uh, since then, there has been a whopping 48 church splits from that one particular church. Astounding. Some of it was doctrinal related. Some of it was just silly. Like, should we have flowers in the sanctuary? Or should the offering be taken before or after the sermon? Uh, Or is it right to check your email on the Sabbath? Things like that. Apparently, when you split 48 times, you really don't really need a good reason. And as a result, uh, the, the names of the churches, at least this one in particular, became longer and longer and longer because they wanted to distinguish themselves from the other 47 churches in town, right? And so here's, here's one of the names, and I believe this is a true resource. One of the churches is called, <clears throat> here we go, the Presbyterian Totally Reformed Covenantal, Westminsterian, Sabbatarian, Regulative, Credo, a Communionist, Amillennial, Presuppositional Church of Centerville. How about that for a name, right? That would be a long, a big sign outside of your church, right? Um, obviously, obviously this church in this town didn't do what Paul said. They didn't live in harmony with one another. L- literally the idea, it could be translated, have the same mind towards one another or be of the same mind with one another. Again, Paul is saying be united in essential doctrine. That's what he's saying. Be united in essential doctrine and in purpose. He's not calling for uniformity. That is, we all dress the same, we all act the same, we all think the same, we all vote the same. He's not calling for that. He's calling for unanimity. That is, we share an undivided opinion on the fundamentals of the faith, and the purpose for which we exist as a church. 
So friends, is that true of us? Are we in harmony here at Grace? This is one of the reasons why it's important that every church has a a doctrinal statement, that we say, this is what we believe. Here's where we stand on these issues, so that those then who join with us in covenant membership affirm that doctrine, so that we will be in harmony with one another. So, harmony is our 11th ingredient, and there's one final, I think, overarching ingredient that we have to put into the pan to create a loving church. And it's found at the very end of verse 16, and it's humility. Paul says, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Of course, to be proud is to think either too highly of yourself or too much about yourself. And it's obviously contrary to what Paul just said. Live in harmony with one another, right? This is what Paul is saying. Proud people pull churches apart. Humble people bring churches together, right? So let me ask you a question. How do you know if you are a proud Christian? How do you know if what Paul is telling us not to be, you or I are. How do you know if you're a, a proud Christian? Well, a couple, a couple ways. Number one, you know that you're a proud Christian if you are unwilling to associate with people of low positions. Notice what Paul says. Don't be proud, but on the contrary, be willing to associate with people. And he's not talking about just people in general. He's talking about other Christians associate with people, other Christians of low position. Who is he talking about, friends? What kind of Christian is he talking about? I believe he's talking about the kind of Christian who has little by way of possessions or prestige or position. The world doesn't make much of these kinds of people, right? They don't consider them to be important, right? Uh, And yet we should in the church. When Christians buy the lie that a fellow brother or a fellow sister is somehow less than them, somehow of low position, then they are being proud. John Stott says this to the proud Christian. They forget that Jesus fraternized freely and naturally with social rejects. And he calls his followers to do the same with both equal freedom and equal natural Number two, you know you're a proud Christian when you have an elevated view of your own importance. Paul says, do not be conceited, right? Do not be conceited. When you think like Archie Bunker from All in the Family who once said, I'm not prejudiced, I love all those inferior people. If you think that way, if you truly think that way, then you're a proud Christian. And Paul says, proud Christians destroy a loving church because they're not humble. So how do, you see, how do you see your fellow believers here at Grace and even beyond the walls of this church? Do you view them in terms of social category primarily? You know what I mean? Like when you think of them and when you, when you, when you see them in the hallway, do you think of them primarily as rich or poor? Do you think of them as uh, uh, popular or less popular? Do you think of them in terms of Uh, They have a lot or they don't. Or do you simply see them as a Christian, as a brother, as a sister in Christ? Do you avoid talking with them in the hallway? 
Do you avoid eye contact with them in the cafe? Do you avoid saying hello to them or having a short conversation with them? Do you avoid being in a ministry that they're in or a Bible study or a committee or sitting at the table where they are? Because friends, friends, Paul says that we should be willing to associate with people, with Christians of low position. We should be humble people. So friends, is that true of us? I pray that it would be increasingly. So where we begin this sermon is where we're going to end. We saw at the very beginning of this sermon what not following a recipe can result in, right? It can result in messy microwaves. It can result in charcoal pizzas. It can result in a, a pile of pizza at the bottom of your oven. It can result in explosion stains on the wall and pan lids stuck on your ceiling, right? As disastrous, as disastrous as those things are. Friends, not following Paul's recipe for a loving church here in Romans 12 can be even more disastrous for a church. Friends, I'm going to close our, our sermon this way. Let's stick to the recipe. Can we do that? Let's pursue the recipe together. Can we pursue sticking to these 12 ingredients? Can we pursue sincerity? Can we pursue discernment? Can we pursue affection and honor and enthusiasm, patience, generosity, hospitality, goodwill, sympathy, harmony, and above all, humility? Friends, if we stick to the recipe, God will create in this church a true culinary masterpiece. He will create a loving church, and it will be good to be a part of. Let's pray.